Hello, and welcome to Legally Bond, a podcast presented by the law firm Bond, Shenneken King. I'm your host, Kim Wolf-Price. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Rebecca Kimura, Senior Counsel in our New York City office. She practices labor and employment law. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. We're glad you could join us. So while I want to talk about your practice overall and your journey to bonds today um, and your work in labor law, I'd like to spend a good part of the time talking about a couple of timely labor and employment law topics, which are vaccinations and mass arbitrations. The impact, I guess, of mass vaccinations on employers and employees, labor law generally, and then the mass arbitration trend that's happening in employment law. Are you game to discuss those today? Absolutely. All right. Sounds great. So before we get into that and talk about sort of the meaty topics, I think our listeners would appreciate knowing a little bit about you. So can you take a few minutes and tell us about your background? Sure. So I received my undergraduate degree from Barnard College at Columbia University and my law degree from Cornell Law School. I started, I then started my career at the ACLU Children's Rights Project in New York, which later became an independent nonprofit organization called Children's Rights, Inc. So I had some experience um, doing plaintiff side work for a while. And we engaged in high-impact litigation, and our mission was to reform the country's child welfare system. And there are so many children who were, who were languishing in the foster care system. So that was very rewarding work. Then I moved to California, and I took eight years off to start a family and raise my own children. After uh, I became a single mom, I switched to the private sector, where I specialized in employment litigation. And I worked uh, at an employment litigation boutique in San Francisco for uh, almost 10 years. And then I moved back to uh, the New York area about three years ago, and I joined Putney, Twombly Hall, and Hearson, which just merged with Bond in April. So now I'm, I'm with Bond as of April this year. That's great. And we're very glad that uh, that you've joined us here. It's a, a very interesting background. I mean, to start out with the um, children's rights work and then have to take that second bar in California, <laughs> which um, all of us who've taken one bar exam often say that's plenty. But uh, that's it's really interesting. And I bet gives you a, a really broad perspective for your clients when you work with them. It's true. It seems that a lot of companies in California have presence in New York or vice versa. So it has been uh, very beneficial. California, as you know, is a very liberal state. I mean, the laws are very liberal. And it's very similar to New York, I'd have to say. Um, New York might be a little bit better, oddly. It seems that California sense seems to start many trends that New York then follows. So they're very, they're, the practice is very similar in many ways. The, the biggest difference is that in California, we spend a lot more time in court and filing motions and arguing motions. But in New York, it seems like motion practice is more limited. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's a, probably a fair summary. One thing you didn't mention, though, is, and we do have an office there, so to shout them out, um, where you're originally from, where you, where you grew up. Yeah, so I grew up in a suburb of Buffalo called Amherst, New York. Go Bills. But my parents later moved to Northern California, so I haven't been back in, in many years. But yeah, I, I loved uh, living in Buffalo and going to Toronto and seeing the falls. So I missed that. I haven't been back since, but I'd like to someday take my kids there. 
Yeah, I was going to say, maybe we can get all of you uh, back. You know, you can come see the office in Buffalo and we can get Love to. Yeah. So is that who you wrote out the pandemic with your kids? Were you guys all home trying to school and work together? Yeah. So I was with my youngest two daughters and our mini golden doodle. And we live in Connecticut. So we were lucky that we were able to take advantage of all the hiking trails and, yeah. and um, you know, be outdoors during the pandemic. Um, we also did a lot of baking and gaming. I have four very competitive daughters and um, two of them are in college in California still. So we would have weekly baking competitions and and we were very fierce. And we also played a lot of games online. Great. Well, so you changed firms in the middle of the pandemic as well, meaning not changed, but your whole firm combined with Von Chenick and King, hopefully for these couple of months so far so good in the combination. Yeah, the transition was pretty seamless. I was coming into the office a couple of times a week anyway, and the Bond offices are pretty close to the old Putney office. Okay. So there wasn't much change there. At the same time I was moving offices, I was also selling my house in Connecticut and buying another house in Connecticut. So it all happened at the same time. So I felt as if I were packing and moving boxes for the past several months. <laughs> yeah, I imagine it was just like boxes everywhere then. It really is. It was like I was I was dreaming of boxes. Yes. When I've moved offices, I've sometimes just like, I'll just take these boxes home for a while. But you didn't want to do that because you already had boxes there. So it was just like Yeah, there was no no place to permanently put something. But now I'm I'm fully moved in That's- and I've been coming to the office regularly. And um, I'd say it's very refreshing to see old and new faces and to have actual conversations in the hallway again. Yeah, it is nice. I've been coming in a few days a week for this Syracuse office, and it is nice to be able to interact with folks. So um, I appreciate you giving us some background so the listeners can get to know you a little bit. I think issue, as it's obvious, right, issues pertaining to the pandemic are going to be prevalent in legal practice and business for the foreseeable future, whether it's dealing with rebuilding or planning for the future. But right now, it does seem like top of mind for many employers is vaccinations. So have there been a lot of inquiries on vaccine status and vaccine requirements to get people back to work? Yeah, every day we get at least one question about vaccines. And this week, I'll be doing three webinars on vaccines. So yeah, it's it's a hot topic. And you know, information from the CDC and the state changes so rapidly. So it's it's something that's always going to be it's going to be coming up a lot in the next couple of months, at least as regulations and laws change. It's just going to be an, an area that we have to keep on top of and make sure that, you know, all employers should uh, make sure that they're current and they should be in touch with their labor and employment attorneys to make sure that they're implementing the best policies. Yeah, this isn't something that's going to stay static for sure. It's going to be a moving target for a while. So is a common question that you're getting, can we require vaccination for our employees? Is that one of the questions being asked? Yeah, especially because uh, many of the employers have been devastated by their workforce shrinking for the last couple of months due to various COVID leaves and whatnot. Um, so they want to be able to reopen at full capacity as soon as possible. But at the same time, they want to ensure that their workplace is, is safe for their employees and for the public. So they definitely want to make sure that um, they, they're doing everything they can to make that happen as quickly as possible. And you mentioned that the CDC and the state, but also some technical assistance came out from the EEOC re- recently, correct? They released some updated assistance on COVID-19. Does that assistance shed some light on this vaccine process? Yes, it was a little unclear before, 
but the EEOC issued updated guidance for employers just last Friday, and they confirmed that employers can require that employees be vaccinated for COVID-19 as a condition to them entering the workplace. But as the guidance suggested earlier, they have to comply with their obligation to provide reasonable accommodations for those employees who need an exemption because they either can't be vaccinated because of a disability or because they have a sincerely held religious belief that prevents them from getting vaccinated. And then on that point about the, the religious exemption, what, what's sort of the recommendation to employers? Is there anything they can do to check on that? Or what's the recommendation on how they follow up? Yeah, so it, that's a it's a great question and one that employers have been grappling with since the EEOC came out with their December guidance. So in their updated guidance, the EEOC has uh, explained now that the definition of religion is so broad and it's impossible to know every religion and every practice, and it's difficult to question people on their beliefs. So the EEOC guidance is that employers should ordinarily assume that an employee's request for a religious accommodation is going to be based on a sincerely held religious belief. And so they should give them the benefit of the doubt. And only if an employer is aware of facts, not just their you know suspicions, but if they have facts that would question their religious belief, then they, they can ask for additional supporting information at that point. Okay, that makes sense. Not just, I don't, my gut tells me right. I have to have more than that. Well, like, I've never heard of that religion before. Is that really a religion? You know, like, you should give them the benefit of the doubt. Fair enough. Okay. And then um, I think one question that maybe employees wonder is, can your employer ask you for your vaccination status? Yeah. So employers can require their employees to be vaccinated. And as a corollary, they can also ask whether their employees have been vaccinated. So they can ask for their vaccine status. And the EEOC guidance clarifies that if they do request uh, their vaccine status and they get information, documentation or other confirmation, that information is considered confidential medical information under the ADA. And like all medical information, it has to be kept confidential and it has to be kept separate from employee's personnel file. That's great to know. I think it's good for employers to know as well, because I think employers probably are trying to figure out what to do about masks in the office, how they follow the, the CDC guidelines as you said before, but keeping their employees and any public that may be interfacing with them safe. But employers have to remember that other roles like healthcare privacy do still come into play. Right. So one piece of assistance that I found interesting was the idea that of inducements to encourage vaccination. But there is a caveat about those inducements. Can you talk a little bit about encouraging um, ways employers might be encouraging, but what they have to be careful of? That's right. Employers can offer incentives to their workers to uh, voluntarily receive the COVID-19 vaccine. But if the employer is going to administer it, then they can offer an incentive so long as it's not so substantial that it's coercive. And that's because vaccinations require employers to ask pre-vaccination disability-related screening questions. And if it's a large enough incentive, it could make employees feel pressured to disclose their protected medical information. So that's only if the employer is administrating the vaccine. The incentive limitation doesn't apply, though, if the workers can get the vaccine from a third-party provider like a drugstore or, or their healthcare provider. So if, uh, so if the employer brings the drugstore into the conference room and they're collecting those forms, then that's a different situation? If there's well, 
No, if the if the employer brings the brings um, brings a, a provider into their into their office and and administers the vaccine, that would be an agent of the employer. If you're providing an incentive to your employees to get vaccinated somewhere else, okay. say they go to a CVS to get vaccinated, then there are no limitations on the, on the incentives. That's great. I could see that though, right? I mean, if it's time off or other things, people may really feel like they have to do it and then disclose the information. So that seems like a, a fair caveat right. to have in place. Are we seeing so that the EOC, you said, um, really clarified it. They, I know they've put out um, technical assistance twice. Employers can require vaccinations. Are employers starting to do that, requiring vaccinations to get people back to the office? Yeah, so the, the updated guidance just came out last Friday, so that it's pretty new. I think beforehand, most employers were encouraging workers to get vaccinated, but not actually requiring it. So, But I think that after this guidance came out, we'll see many more employers changing their policies going forward. Right. So because so right now we're sort of in that you can go maskless in the office if we know you're vaccinated sort of encouragement phase, but then it, they could take further steps. Right. And in terms of how you're going to enforce like if an employer does have a mandate to require all their employees to be va- employees to be vaccinated, I think New York issued guidance recently saying that it's up to each employer to figure out how they want to do go about doing that and what type of information they can require to confirm whether or not their employees have been vaccinated. So they can either um, require proof of vaccination or the Celsius pass or anything like that, or they could go by the honor code. It's it's all pretty new right now, but we'll see You know, if people actually abide by the honor code and what kinds of discipline will be you know meted out for those who actually are, are found to have lied about their vaccination status. I'll be interested in seeing what happens there. But yeah, honor code, you know, and it's it's always uh, interesting to see, you know, how how workers actually comply with honor code. Yeah, that'll be a whole interesting phase of labor and employment law if yeah. that starts to, to happen. Um, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but th- this information is kind of fluid because as a country and of course globally, we're not at herd immunity. So what, could this guidance change just based on that once there's herd immunity? will potentially the technical assistance change about requiring vaccination? Yeah, I think that's what makes employment law so exciting right now because the medical information is constantly evolving. And, you know, with new information comes new policies from various agencies that are tasked with uh, making public policy. And so when one of these agencies issues new guidance, other agencies react and eventually it trickles down to the state and then in our case, the city. So it's just a constantly evolving area of law and it's, it's, it's important to be on top of it. And it's important to make sure that, you know, especially for employers, since it, since it is changing so rapidly to make sure that, that all their policies are in compliance. And, and you, you mentioned the honor system, this vaccinated, unvaccinated issue, as we all, all know, can be very heated. Some employees will be very adamant that they only want to be around people who are vaccinated and unvaccinated people have strong feelings as well. Do you expect there will be workplace disputes and other issues around this topic? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is a very heated topic, especially for those who are either unwilling or unable to be vaccinated. It's also going to be a topic for people who may have been fully vaccinated, but but maybe they're immunocompromised or have family members who are immunocompromised. It's not going to end with vaccination for sure. There are also ongoing debates about 
whether you should still wear masks regardless. And so, yeah, that, that there will be a lot of controversy and um, hopefully not litigation, but, you know, it is an evolving area. Yeah, and as a firm, we have a lot of school district clients and five to 12-year-olds who are in school are not even eligible yet. So I'm sure that there's a lot of different right. different ways we have to look at this for different clients, different constituencies as well. So yeah, it'll keep you very busy, I think. <laughs> the, uh, the results of all of this will certainly keep you busy. I think that we could do a whole podcast on this next topic, but I would like to at least just sort of touch on it a little bit because I, I find it so fascinating as someone who did class action work for a while. And it's this idea of mass arbitrations. It seems to be sort of a new factor in the equation for employers thinking about employee arbitration programs. So I know this is a big turn from vaccinations, but I would like to at least sort of like start this conversation because I think it's something we could talk about in a whole podcast going forward. Before we start, I suppose maybe we should tell the the listeners like what is an arbitration agreement and then we can kind of talk for a couple minutes from there. Sure. Uh, An arbitration agreement is an agreement between an employee and the employer to settle any of their employment-related disputes outside of court and through arbitration. And uh, it's it's in many more employment agreements, um, contracts nowadays. It's advantageous for employers because it often limits the cost of litigation and, and keeps disputes confidential. For employees, they often want to arbitrate as opposed to litigate because it leads to quicker resolution. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's not a long, it's not many years until you get right. a decision, but you can get one sooner than that. It's so, like a streamlined um, litigation. Right. With um, And then a trained arbitrator is paid to be, take part in the process and help resolve. Is that correct? Right. I mean, they have all the authority of a, of a judge, but they don't necessarily have to follow the law. So sometimes it's good when your case is not going as well as you would have wanted to have it go into arbitration. But, you know, it's it's good because for employers because they are kept confidential. So sometimes you want to, if it's a, a hot topic issue, you, you want it to be kept confidential in arbitration. Yeah, that makes makes perfect sense. It also just helps generally with branding and other issues. Right for the organization. So when we say mass arbitration, I think of it as some type of almost like class action. So what is mass arbitration? So it's it's slightly different. Well, it's actually very different from a class action. Well, you don't need all the um, elements of class action, but it's all this group of people coming together. Right. Well, so in a class action, there's one representative or several representatives who can bring claims on behalf of all others who are similarly situated and that could be, you know, anywhere from 10 people to thousands of people. In mass arbitration, you have many similarly situated claimants who may have been able to be part of a class action, but they're initiating their own individual arbitrations against the same defendant simultaneously. So that requires... That's exhausting to even think about. It is. And also it's costly for the employer who then has to pay the fees out on all of these arbitrations. So when you bring it together, I mean, when you call it a mass arbitration, you're doing it simultaneously. So imagine an employer having to shell out thousands of dollars for each of these arbitrations. So if you have a mass arbitration of 100, it could be easily um, 200,000 in just fees alone just to initiate the arbitration. Right, because it's filing fees, arbitrator compensation, right. and other fees and costs, and that's just to get it going. Right. 
So um, this typically then would impact large companies who... Not necessarily, that- because smaller companies also have arbitration agreements because it's it's more economical for them to arbitrate than to allow, to allow their employees to file uh, their claims in, in court. But, you know, you have to have a big workforce to have these mass arbitrations. So if one per, one claimant or worker is filing, let's say, a, a wage and hour dispute, and if they have an arbitration agreement, they're, they're not permitted to bring their dispute in court. And oftentimes these arbitration agreements say that they can't bring class claims either. So it, you know, for some savvy plaintiff's counsel, they want to put pressure on the employer to settle as a class, um, but but since they can't bring it as a class action, they then bring these mass arbitrations, these costly you know mass arbitrations to encourage settlement. Right. So people, so maybe lawyers who had been doing your typical class actions in tobacco and other places are using this as a strategy to affect the same type of settlement and put pressure on the employers. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And the more employees that you have with similar in similar situations, the more of these claims you can file. There are a couple of cases in California where there, they had thousands of claimants and, um, you know, the employer wasn't able to advance all the fees for the arbitration. So it does put pressure on uh, real pressure on companies to, to settle in that type of situation. Yeah. So, so I recently had um, a mass arbitration and it, it involved 50 claimants. And in my case, the the plaintiff's counsel wanted, you know, was going to threaten to bring a a large class action lawsuit uh, for wage and hour claims that could have potentially impacted thousands of of people. But then we advised them that the employees signed arbitration agreements that prevented them from bringing suit in court and also prevented them from bringing um, class actions in or class arbitrations. So um, they were foreclosed from bringing their, their claims in court. And so they instead set out to find as many claimants as they could to file these arbitration claims. And they were able to come up with 50. And so I managed those for about two years, took the depositions, completed discoveries. And in the end, we were able to settle all 50 of those arbitrations for considerably less than we would have if we had to settle the class of thousands. That's so in, in, in our case, it worked. In some cases, it's prohibitively expensive. Right, because there's there's limit time frames which you have to pay all those fees, the arbitrator fees right. and, and all the filing fees. And if you can't actually find that liquid, then that makes it very difficult. Do you see this as a trend continuing, these mass arbitrations? Yeah, it, it is an emerging trend and one that plaintiff's counsel has been pursuing just for the same reason I said, to force settlements. Right. Um, they don't really want to pursue hundreds of individual um, arbitrations, but it's really a tactic to force uh, employers to settle. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, on contingency fee, I don't know that you'd want to go to a thousand different. Right, but at the same time, um, I think employers are starting to get wiser because this is a trend and they're trying to put more pressure on these arbitration associations to shift the fee arrangement. So I know that one large company has been able to get an agreement with AAA so that they don't have to to advance these fees in these mass arbitrations. Yeah, there's got to be ways to sort of handle this as, this as, as this trend moves forward. Well, I appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk about that because I, I find it 
very interesting. And um, we were just talking about your matter where, you know, you're settled the 50, which is fantastic. After two years and all of those depositions, and that's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. So um, I hope it's something that we can um, talk about again as, as things develop on that front. And of course, also, I don't think we're going to be done with the COVID vaccination process either. So we may need to check back in on that. So I hope that you'll consider joining us on the podcast again in the future. Happy to. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was great to talk to you and to learn from you today. So thanks, Rebecca. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Legally Bond. If you are listening and have any questions for me, want to hear from someone from the firm, or have a suggestion for a future topic, please email us at legallybond at bsk.com. Also, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Legally Bond wherever podcasts are downloaded. Bond, Shenick, and King has prepared this communication to present only general information. This is not intended as legal advice, nor should you consider it as such. You should not act or decline to act based upon the contents. While we try to make sure that the information is complete and accurate, laws can change quickly. You should always formally engage a lawyer of your choosing before taking actions which have legal consequences. For information about our communication, firm, practice areas, and attorneys, visit our website, bsk.com. This is Attorney Advertising.